you are in Salt Lake City now? Good old Salt Lake. Yep. Have you a, a lifelong Utah? No, but I've been here for a long time. Since about high school, I've been in Utah and no real reason to leave yet. So <laughs> <laughs> even when your governor prays for rain, is that the... <laughs> I try not to affiliate with that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am. I've been to Salt Lake a couple of times. It's uh, breathtaking. Just the 360 views of the mountains when you're in town there. You came to Utah from where? We moved around a few times when I was younger. I was born in New York, actually, Staten Island. And then I lived in a few places in California, Hinsdale, Illinois, uh, and Utah were the, the primary. So you essentially reenacted the pilgrimage that uh, Joseph Smith <laughs> and, and Brigham Young brought together from New York to Utah. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice story to talk about how a kid from Staten Island settles into Utah in terms of the, it's a bit of a culture shock, I'm sure. The Staten Island boy moved to Utah. That, that, that's my dad's story. <laughs> oh, really? My parents were there until about 30, and that's when they moved to California. So, And they brought their family west. Yeah, my dad wanted to get out of it, live a different life. We had a lot of construction workers in the family, and he didn't want to do that. So he went and he got his MBA and got a job at Bank of America and moved to California. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, what kind of effect does that have on you? The fact that, you know, not every father has that kind of proactive sense of going against the grain and deciding to raise his family elsewhere and do something else with his life. I mean, what impact did that have on you? I think it's a huge impact. You know, there's a lot of personal aspects that go along with it too, but from a professional development standpoint, he's the guy I'm like, okay, let's, let's find somebody much smarter than me and ask the question and blindly follow until I know what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's been a, an incredibly valuable resource to have as you know, at my disposal, more or less. Right. It's like, everybody tells you to find a mentor and find an advisor and find a sponsor and, there was one right there that, that I could tap into if I was wanting to pursue that lifestyle. Oh, that's great. So he, he was able to provide that for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very present. It, it was great having that resource there, being that I took to that lifestyle too, and I wanted to do something professional and learn what I could, listen when I could, right? Uh, and just kind of applied that to my my own personal development. So. Well, I, I want to hear more about Detect. I want to hear about all your experiences, soup to nuts. I want to hear more about your background in cybersecurity and how Detect came to be. And I'll just say a few things about my experience with crowdfunding. I wasn't intimately familiar with it prior to Detect. And I was looking for creative ways to expand what I knew I'd be able to raise on my own to kind of get to that end level goal that I wanted to get to for this, this particular round raise. And in doing research, they say pre-revenue angel investors are interested, but my experience with talking with these angel investors and early stage startup investors is they want revenue. It's not yeah. really a pre-revenue type deal. And even sitting and doing my pitch to all these people, I very frequently, people came back and said, oh, well, we're more of like once you have traction and you just want marketing dollars is when we'll come in and just throw some cash to fuel the fire that's already burning. So definitely one challenge that I you know, ran into and continue to run into just given the stage of the, the company. But you know, in you know, coming to the conclusion that it was going to be difficult getting other you know, early stage, large scale investors to invest in the company, given where we were at at this time, stumbled across crowdfunding. 
you know, and in concept, I, it sounds like a very interesting idea, right? I, I mean, I, I'm even thinking from a, an innovation standpoint, creating a stock market for anybody to invest in private companies. You're essentially giving the torch to the average consumer, the average investor to go out there and make decisions on their own. When you look at the stock market, I think that as just an individual who's investing with the stock market, you're just along for the ride. But when you start to be able to choose startups and choose individuals and pick successes that you think will be successful, I think the opportunity to capitalize on your investment skyrockets. So I thought the, the concept of crowdfunding was something that was super insightful. And I, I bought into it and I started doing some research. I don't want to say there's something like three to five major players in the market. They all have different plays. Uh, some make you go through a more strict application process. Others are just trying to grab anybody that they can. But really, at the end of the day, I think it's hard. It's hard for them to differentiate. So they try to gain market share by telling you that their investor profiles are much more active. We have so many investors, much more active investor profiles. Our marketing tactics are better. Whether or not that's true, I'm not, I'm not sure because I've only used the one WeFunder platform. So maybe there are others who have better marketing tactics or more active investor networks. But I chose, chose WeFunder. Online reviews, I think across the board, are, they're up and down. It just depends on people's experiences and whether you're an investor or somebody who's asking for investment in your company, they, they tend to vary. Some people get 35x return on ad spend when it comes to their organization, but I think those are unicorns. And you know, the same goes from an investor perspective. I think that it's, it's, it's high risk. You know, it's high risk and potentially high reward. You're investing in a startup. So I get the caution on the investor side. Uh, and I get that it's challenging from a platform perspective to market to all of these investors, given that you're selling something so risky. But you know, still at the core, I really like the idea of crowdfunding. So I decided to give it a try check the IRS, check the SEC, because, you know, the concept, you know, th th this is probably another really interesting point associated with crowdfunding is you're essentially taking away your direct relationship with your investors. So if you're talking about getting a large scale, you know, whatever, $100,000, $200,000, $500,000, somebody's making a really large transaction, they're going to be the intermediary. They're an intermediary bank. So the actual investor themselves has to give the money to WeFunder as an intermediary. So I had some people who were investing in mine who, you know, are older and they're very uncomfortable with the idea of giving a $500,000 check to an intermediary bank before, <laughs> before it shows up in my bank account, right? It's like, well, I'm trying to give you $500,000. And there is, you know, there's these, these web app blockers and issues and errors that are popping up that are hard to decipher. And I have to work with a support team called VIP launch support in order to get these issues resolved. It's like, this shouldn't be that hard. I just want to transfer the money to you. Right. You know, I think it's less than 10 years old. I can't remember exactly when crowdfunding became legal, but uh, it is. Well, the jobs legal. act. Yeah. Probably in 2012 is like the Genesis point for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So 2012 and everything just starts to pop up and but now there's, you know, companies valued at one to $500 million that raised $50,000 on WeFunder when they first were founded. So there are some unicorn stories. And I think, you know, generally speaking, when it comes to startups and generating wealth, I think that's what you're pursuing, right? You're pursuing that, that unicorn story. So that much definitely holds true. 
but you, you, you know, it's not all, it's not all negative. I, they've, they've done a good job with their, their tech and their online platform, despite some issues popping up with errors here and there, or having bank transaction issues with transferring large sums of money, things pop up. You know, I use web apps all the time. Um, there's errors and bugs that happen, but it's generally speaking, a pretty good intuitive platform that allows you to create your company profile, upload your pitch, show the world what you want to do, go public with it. And then it's very easy for an investor to put a credit card in and just start investing. Yeah. Uh, As you rightly say, in the years that equity crowdfunding has matured and the number of entries into the market has matured and expanded, investors now are finding they can pick and choose. It's much more of a buyer's market now, I think. And so some of the success behind equity crowdfunding has been, as you say, if you're pre-revenue, they'd rather look at a successful foray into recruiting investors initially as a way to build faith in the overall product. The barriers to entry are, are rising a bit. That speaks to how viable it is as a process. So I'm curious about your viewpoint there as far as you do have a bit of capital to work with at this point. So where has that come from? And where do you see that contracting the schedule from pre-revenue to revenue? Yeah. So what I'll say is it's not exactly what I was hoping for because I wanted to invest more in faster product and development as well as marketing spend. And when I say marketing spend, really our comprehensive direct-to-consumer offering uh, and with direct- yeah, you got that family on your website. It's clearly meant for, for individuals and households and things. Yeah. Yeah. And we've been working really hard towards that. But unfortunately, when you look at like our vision of like enterprise level cybersecurity for a family or a modern consumer, there's a lot that goes into that. We're just trying to take a step back and say, okay, I'm a chief security officer for a, a large company, regardless of the industry. And here's the program that I would put in, in place to protect our clients, our customers, and in easy to understand you know, tolerable fashion. But what my round raise so far has made me step back and and have to do is say, okay, I I need to invest a little bit less in product enhancements. I still need to invest in engineering, right? You can't sell a product that's not uh, completely finished. And then rather than focus on marketing spend, where we're going to pivot these next 12 to 18 months from a revenue generation perspective, our business to business related opportunity. And with that is less of a marketing effort and much more of a sales effort. Uh, so yeah. I had some, some other conversations going on with software sales professionals who I've known uh, in my network for a long time. And it's like, same conversations I've had with others uh, who have been doing work with me on Detect for quite some time now, uh, prior to funding, um, trying to take an idea and bring it to market is equity arrangements, right? So we, we have this thing, we, we have funding, that funding needs to go towards engineering. Here's what we need to do in the next 12 to 18 months in order to get to a revenue target that we need to get to in order to make sure this business is sustainable. Um, we need to build our sales strategy around uh, securing another, whatever, you know, two, three, four, five partners um, that can get us to a sustainable you know, level of income. So, and what about your IP is proprietary? I mean, it strikes me that cybersecurity is front and center on a lot of people's minds. I totally get the pivot toward B2B just because businesses in general seem to have their eye on that far more assiduously given the, their own IP that they need to protect. Yeah. Um, so I imagine you're going to find a bit more purchase literally among people whose job it is to consider that as opposed to consumers who may have a tougher time learning what they need to do and learning what's out there. And, and we will get to the fear mongering soon enough <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about someone like you who must know all the bookums that are out there that a lot of us regular consumers are blissfully ignorant of. 
that is an interesting piece when you say fear mongering. I've tried really hard. I, I, I do have somebody who's doing cr- some creative stuff when it comes to social and marketing and, e- and email content. And we've we really try to stay away from the fear mongering part of it. And, you know, I, I hope it proves a, a good strategy as we continue looking at like our social ads and our email ads, but just keep, keep it clean, factual to the point and on our other core uh, mission messaging, which, you know, really isn't supposed to make somebody scared, rather feel safe, right? <laughs> right. And you want to walk that fine line because part of marketing is to say, this is the problem. Here's how I'm solving it. You know, the signal and the noise, it's a mounting problem for everybody. And I think, especially in a crowded marketplace like cybersecurity, you really have to make your mark as a quality product and word of mouth is going to spread pretty quickly about that. But you know, speaking of fear-mongering, welcome to episode 243 of the Successfully Funded Podcast, brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we get to the heat of the meat here, there's a quick disclaimer I'd like to read. This is actually a portion of it. Uh, The entire disclaimer is available on our podcast website at successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. But it is important for you to know that KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. So now that that's out of the way, I'd like to introduce myself as your host, Doug French with KiwiTech. And we are here talking with the founder and CEO of Detect, spelled D-T-E-C-K-T, because of course there are no words left in URLs. Detect brings corporate level security, tools, and protection to your household and aims to give you the ability to stay protected from digital theft and cyber attacks. So we're going to learn a lot about all the forces and sinister creatures that go bump in the night with the founder and CEO, Matt DeVico. Welcome, Matt. Welcome, Matt. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Little pun. I like it. No, it's terrible. And I wish I could edit that out, but I I think it's just too organic with the flow. I don't think I can do it. So listeners, I'm sorry in advance that you had to endure that. So Matt, it's great to talk to you about Detect and um, in your history as an analyst, as a cybersecurity specialist and professional, what's it like out there? Are the threats mounting and what in particular inspired you to create Detect as a way to fend them off? Since the start of my career, I've been either in or working towards being in cybersecurity. You know, my personal opinion is when you start down the path of IT, everybody's got to put their uh, time in on IT help desk. So that's where I started. Um, on so an one of the first favorite acronyms you learned was RTFM. Yeah, yeah. So spending lots of time just answering calls, helping people with day-to-day problems associated with computers, but spent some time doing that at a you know top 30 consumer and commercial oriented bank in the United States and spent my time in IT support and ended up moving into information security. 
you know, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to be when I got older. So <laughs> what I did and I would you mean your off. early life in Staten Island didn't inspire a, <laughs> a, a career as a computer cop. No, no, exactly. So I've been fortunate to know some people in business who have done really well for themselves and just having conversations with them and asking them, what are good routes to take? Where's the market going to take us in 10, 15 years? Uh, what's going to be in high demand? Where are those pressures going to be coming? And largely a, a lot of cybersecurity was very front and center, being that I kind of had some technical proficiency. I, I like to tell people that I found somebody much smarter than me who gave me very sound advice and I blindly followed. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and it, it ended up working out really well. I, you know, I think cybersecurity did and continues to gain traction in many different verticals. So glad I, you know, one, had those resources at my disposal and two, um, took that advice and went down the path of cyber and information security and data protection. So I, I got into it at that large bank and I worked, you know, mainly in what they call identity and access management. So understanding personas, understanding what users are doing and not doing, understanding application access and application access life cycles. I spent some time doing some vulnerability assessment and network security related stuff, but ultimately ended up moving on to another smaller financial institution where I quickly realized that I liked the uh, broader range of knowledge I was able to acquire at a smaller company rather than being at like a top 30 bank. You get more exposure at a smaller company because you're expected to do more. I also did spend some time at another startup that focused on passive pen testing. So it was another security software startup company, which kind of opened my eyes to the startup world, I would say. You know, it was exciting. Um, the company was successful. So good from an experience perspective, good from a monetary perspective. And, you know, I think it was a the company itself had a really good value prop. So spent several years there and was, was able to build nothing into something. Nice. <laughs> um, from there, I, you know, I got a job offer to become the chief security officer for another financial institution. And that, that aligned with my long-term goals at the time. Went to build a program at that organization. I got a taste of that startup world and just started thinking about it again and uh, had some conversations with some other partners in the past who were interested in doing some enhanced risk analytics to provide to consumers, specifically around grading organizations and telling the larger audience how they perform from a security and privacy perspective. You know, these are things that the enterprise world takes for granted, right? I think all of this venture capital in the past 10 years has been going to B2B companies. You know, do you think that's a, a quote, easier source of revenue or at least a larger source of revenue? Or why do you think that's the direction a lot of these places go? And, and how did it affect your decision to focus, at least initially, on consumers? I, I think from an investor standpoint, it's less risky because yeah. the, the business to business oriented market, you're selling into technical and cybersecurity professionals who understand and have budget to do it because there's legal requirements that they have to do it, right? I mean, there's always going to be a B2B market because they have to do it, right? It's a requirement. It's less risky for them because, okay, yeah, I know this is a proven model. I know organizations are going to buy something that has a good value prop. What's the hottest thing on the market right now? Um, problem that, that I think everybody's running into the B2B space right now is that it's highly saturated. Like you talk about these big cybersecurity uh, conferences that everybody goes to. There's like 2,000 vendors that are yeah. sitting at, at booths waiting to talk to people. It's just insane numbers. Um, you should just go into the business of making lanyards. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> that that, that might have been an easier sell for me. I don't know. But uh, 
I feel like, you know, my job as a chief security officer is really to protect the stakeholders of the organization. But problem with this whole thing is consumers just aren't given the tools or visibility because all the money has been put towards businesses and consumers are left blind with nothing to really help them, right? I mean, if I was like, okay, consumer, who do you want to do business with, right? And why do you or don't you want to give them your social security number or upload your driver's license or whatever the case may be as it relates to your online identity? It's like, okay, well, if I'm a consumer now, I'm not educated in data privacy or cybersecurity. Most likely I'm not, maybe I am, but what am I supposed to do? They're like, you're a consumer, you need to start educating yourself. So you go and you look at all the established consumer brands that are doing things in way of you know, cybersecurity services, like the antivirus companies or the identity protection companies or the yeah. password manager companies. But when you look at consumer related offerings, that's really it. There's those three big, what I call feature function. From there, is there other risks that exist or am I covered? You know, my experience in the cybersecurity space as somebody developing programs for an organization, there is 30 more categories that you need to be aware of rather than just those three preventative mechanisms. I'd argue that proactive is just as important, if not more important as the preventative type stuff, but that type of stuff just doesn't exist. So, Well, um, don't you think we're finding more as consumers are becoming a much more engaged base in terms of they are learning more because only in the past few years have we learned about how data can be weaponized against us. Yeah, it's one I, thing to be, you know, we're told that it's just a benign thing. They just want to advertise to you more efficiently. But now we're talking about location software. You know, anything that you've posted online can be used against you later on. And we're really learning the, the pernicious side of being, quote, so social and so sharing and so trusting. And now we really need to look at how much data we put online with a much more skeptical eye. And I'm only saying this because the whole idea of, of social media and blogging and sharing and all that was the, the kumbaya phase was when I was an adult with, um, with younger children. Now my children are in high school and college and they don't want to put anything online. They don't feel the same utility in sharing as much as we did, maybe because we didn't know any better. So as we're evolving by generation, do you think that we will have a much stronger, much more engaged, a much more informed consumer base as these discussions become much more common. I definitely think so. I think that 10 years ago, even from an organizational standpoint, trying to get investment in cybersecurity was not necessarily an easy task. You had to be just as much of a salesperson as you did a technical or security person in order to get the funding you needed to do it. And you know, over those 10 years, laws, regulations, breaches, the news reporting on things, requirements for the boardroom to understand cybersecurity, all of those things combined led to much less of a need for a you know, security officer to sell security. And they just got the funding they needed, right? And I think we're seeing a similar shift when it comes to the consumer market as well, where the news is do doing a lot of the marketing and selling for this topic, right? I mean, it's like the news is reporting that the FBI is saying TikTok is a national security yeah. threat. I mean, that's that's all over the place right now. I think consumers, you know, are starting to think, you know, do I really want an app on my phone that is able to read and write to my pictures and read and write my email and look at all of my browsing history, regardless if I give it the permission or not? You know, taking a step back from there, how do I even begin to understand what all of these different apps on my phones are doing with the privacy policies of every single company that I do business with? It's not an easy problem 
to solve. But all of those things that we, that we just mentioned are part of what we're looking at from a consumer perspective for giving this risk analytics view to a consumer that's easy to understand, right? I mean, you want to know what data is being collected from the companies you do business with. Okay, we'll show you that information. You want to know what the privacy policy insights are, how to get to their privacy. Okay, we'll show you. You want to know how to understand how to delete your information with a company or request the information that a company has on you. Okay, we'll help you with that, assuming the company has a process in place for you to do that type of stuff, right? So do you want to freeze your credit, which I highly advise people do, we'll help you with that process, right? I think there's all of these things from a consumer standpoint that aren't necessarily focused on when you look at business software solutions, because they're not catered to consumers where we really do want to cater to consumers. We want to give them risk insights and reduce their risk service as it relates to their online identity. That's, that, that's, that's really core to our mission. So now Detect comes along. You've created Detect with a consumer in mind, and you talk about the advice and the advisory role that you want to play when a client signs on with you. I would imagine that so much of your role is as much about educating people about what they need to know, and then educating them also about how much you know in terms of making them and their identities safe online. I frequently get uh, marketers telling me the message is too broad, which it is very broad. When I said that, like the feature function comment where you had password managers, identity protection services, and antivirus, nobody's packaging it all together and, and really giving it to a consumer. So I've tried to break it down to five main protection kits. And those protection kits are digital risk, alerting and details, finance and identity, device protection, and visibility and control. And each of those protection kits applies to the subscription plans. You have, you know, protect yourself with different levels of service all the way through our protect plan. And then you throw on the family plan, which starts to bring in, you know, protect your family members as well, whether it's your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your kids, whomever, because I think the person who's probably signing up for the protection plans falls into a bunch of different categories, depending on who probably the most tech savvy person is in the family. So those protection kits span a lot of different services. And you can find those either on the, the WeFunder page, which is just wefunder.com forward slash detect, or on detect.com forward slash services. And starting to browse around there, you'll find something like 50 different low-level services that we're targeting to offer to consumers. I think a really important point to stress with consumers is that you're at the liberty of the organizations you do business with. Most of the time, when something goes bad, it's because a company that has your information or that you do business with lost your information in a data breach of some sort. So no fault to yourself, besides the fact that maybe you didn't have the tools available to you to understand what the risk was of doing business with that company. What's really important with cybersecurity is managing your risk. So just understanding it, hedging against risk, reducing your risk, understanding when an indicator of compromise pops up. And it's like, okay, this is so much stuff, but that's what we aim to do is just say, hey, put in some of your details, put in the companies you do business with, we'll give you those risk insights. So I would think, yeah, you'd need to do that. I was, because there's so much to choose from, so many permutations and bundles and, and options in terms of educating your consumer what that consumer needs uh, and assessing, getting a full profile of where that customer is coming from so that you can cater your services to what that customer needs and recognize the strengths and weaknesses of each scenario. That's got to be a daunting process. There's a lot to it and there's you know a lot for a consumer to understand and we hope to simplify that process. But you know through through giving you know visibility into cybersecurity practices associated with organizations of your choosing, understanding real-time breach, 
activities that occur with organizations uh, based on monitoring state and federal databases, understanding compromised credentials as it relates to dark web breaches, taking all of these different inputs, putting them into an identity risk score. So you understand what your risk is and you look at your prioritized items that you can start to reduce your risk and increase your risk score. You know, I think finance and identity is a huge piece of it. When I say the consumer market has been very feature function oriented with identity protection and Anna, I'm not discounting that those are important. I'm just saying that there's a lot more that's important for a consumer to understand. So you'll get all of those traditional antivirus services and endpoint protection services and identity protection service, password manager. So that's when we start to get into like a finance and identity protection kit. You look at things like an erase me privacy service where you can press a button and ask the organization to delete information that they have on you or just request information. Digital inheritance planning, lost wallet protection, credit free services. Moving on to a category of what I call persona monitoring. And persona monitoring is just like any alert that pops up that would be interesting, such as like non-credit loan monitoring, bank account takeover monitoring, court and criminal monitoring, dark web monitoring, compromised credential, social security trace monitoring, credit inquiry, all of those different monitoring alerts that you'd be interested in fall in this persona monitoring category. Well, um, what I love so far is you've established yourself as a galaxy brain in terms of being aware of so many things that you need to distill down to be accessible to a lay person yeah. like, like myself um, <laughs> and take on some of the intellectual burden or the, the burden over the arcane terminology that you're aware of and translate that into something that your consumer can understand. What are those conversations like? How do you go about doing them? And have you thought about opening as, as part of this equity raise some kind of an educational wing that lets people just get a sense of what they've subscribed to and the protections that they're about to get. The I detect masterclass in all things security for the basic consumer, you know, something right. like that. Yep, exactly. Maybe it goes back to the IT support days. Uh, but I've, I've always felt very strongly in not outsourcing support and giving that premium level of service and education and understanding and making sure people know what they're doing, what the product does and how to use it. So that's going to be key to, I think, having a product that succeeds is making sure we kill it from a support perspective. Yeah. And that's, you clearly have that compassion factor. And I'm curious how this goes now, because I think so much of your company's persona is based in your persona as, as a creator and as a protector. And that's kind of the brand you want to establish for Matt DeVico. I mean, how's that going so far? It's, it's going. <laughs> it's, uh, it is proceeding. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. You know, I spent the first six months just theorizing and putting together volume projections and doing market studies. You know, everything continued to come back favorable. And it really is something, you know, building and maturing cyber programs to protect stakeholders has been what I've been, you know, my career has been about for a very long time. And, you know, I, I understood the startup world and I had a, I had a passion for this. I just kept going. Took a lot of criticism from the development people who have been helping me from the beginning because I, I really want to realize this vision of providing this like end-to-end -end enterprise level cybersecurity solution before going to market, right? I don't want to like taint it with some half-baked solution. I want it to be there. So that's probably from incorporation now why it's taken a little bit longer, but you now we're getting really close and getting really excited for it. If you're looking to distinguish yourself, you know, as a, as a pre-revenue company that has a lot to say and a lot to impart to an overwhelmed populace because that's again i'm just coming at this from my own viewpoint as a typically overwhelmed father too 
you do have that opportunity to establish yourself as somebody who can convey things in a very rudimentary yet informed way and and make a make a name for yourself because as you say b2b is a it's the default setting for a lot of people and yet consumer is a really bold choice because that's where the growth is what kind of competition do you have when you try to approach consumers and when you feel like a sapling among the sequoias how do you respond to that how do you grope for your own sunlight there's competition in the space as it relates to these specific protection measures and you know i think for some consumers that's good enough or maybe they just don't care about being protected in these other areas or understanding their online risk they just want an alert when something is questionable from an identity right they'll buy the car and they'll just like as long as it's running we'll keep the hood down sure yep there are you know other players in the market very few <laughs> but others who are trying to do something similar and you know, I, I want to go back to your, your training comment really quick, because I think that's an important one. I just want to draw a parallel to building a successful security organization at a company. The training and awareness component of information security is a huge one. The biggest risk factor at a company is always the human element, because like a phishing email gets through, somebody clicks a link or something like that. Somebody goes to a bad website. Somebody accidentally sends an email to a third party they weren't supposed to do. Somebody has an issue in an application they program that allows somebody to get access they shouldn't have. It's always the, the human component that's the hardest to solve. So building that security uh, awareness culture and developing security champions is always key to being successful in an organization. And I'm just trying to take that experience that I've had in the past of like doing it at a company and building a successful program and doing that for a user. And security training and awareness would be a huge component to that. And I think in these early stages, we try to do that through our email drip marketing campaigns, and we try to do it through our social presence. And now, do you have proprietary software, a proprietary IP that uh, is part of the detect the services? I mean, there's a particular software that consumers will have singular access to? We do. We have some patents pending. You know, there's a few different things we're doing from a proprietary standpoint uh, and offering to consumers, like how we're grading security and privacy of an organization or the different type of unique alerts that we're sending out. But I think one of the more interesting ones is really how all of this stuff rolls up into an identity risk score. So this is 100% proprietary and it's us taking all of these different components and, and alerts that exist and the unacknowledged dark web alerts that you have or identity alerts that you have or who you're doing business with and what their security and privacy and giving you that, that insight from an identity risk score perspective that really is geared to tell you where to focus your time and attention. The companies you do business with have an F. These are the companies that have an F. Here are things you can do to mitigate that. Well, you can delete, you request that your information be deleted with that. All right, so that's a good step that a consumer can take. As we continue to mature, there's probably a lot more automation we can do in way of that for consumers. But, you know, for now, I think we're given really good visibility into, you know, those risk analytics. Well, and when you performed needs assessment to decide what your software would look like, what factors did you take into account and what was the first thing you created and what does it do? It's company grading at its core. It's the algorithm and different mechanisms that you would need, whether a, from a qualitative or quantitative perspective, to understand how an organization performs. And I think businesses are, are interested in different low-level detail that a consumer would not be. And I think businesses are interested in various things that a consumer is not interested in. The same can be said the other way. A consumer is interested in analytics of an organization that a business wouldn't care about. You know, it's, it's like, how do I request my information be deleted? Is there a privacy policy? 
What information do they collect on me? Can I delete my information? How do I delete my information? What's the security support contact email if something was to happen? Does it exist? Does it not exist? So all, all of these different factors make up you know, our own proprietary grade for an organization. And that's the very first thing that we tackled and building the scoring engine and building the different internet scanners and building the database and the formula and the extract, transform and load processes that can spit out a grid, you know, something very simple. And here are the five subjects and here are the 15 topics that make up that grade. And here, here's the lower level detail that you would care about. We don't want to put a company at risk. While we may tell you what a technology grade is, there's no real scenario where we're going to give subscribers of the detect portal access to information that could compromise a company. But we will tell a consumer how they perform from a security and privacy perspective. And the same goes for an organization. Like we understand there could be false positives. You know, there may be an issue with the grade, but we've built it in a way that if you're a representative of an organization and there's an issue with a grade, hop in there, fill out a false positive report or tell us where the issue is. And we'll make that update associated with it. If of course it should be made available. Yeah. And I was thinking when you, when you think about trying to convey your message to consumers and I I'm thinking about uh, Apple's new campaign, you know, essentially just turning their Apple logo into a padlock. Well, how do you gauge the effectiveness of a campaign like that? And um, what do you think Apple's new decisions about privacy and harvesting data for marketing and everything else? How do you think that will affect the conversation and help educate the public to learn more about why security is important and why you can provide it? Yeah. I mean, I think these news campaigns, as far as data breaches go, all these things that Apple is doing from a privacy perspective, they're taking a much different spin than just say Facebook. I'd say that's the polar opposite, right? When it comes to privacy practices. (laughs) But they keep telling us, they keep telling us, don't you worry about a thing, but who? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Apple. I'm a, I'm an iPhone user. I'm a MacBook user. I like the Apple ecosystem and, and things that go along with it. I believe in them as a company from a privacy perspective. I think they're doing more than other companies are doing. And I think they've helped advance the security space a lot. Microsoft is pretty notorious for being really good with information security, but at the same time, it's a self-inflicted problem. They're just benefiting from it. (laughs) Uh, The most vulnerable software on the planet, yet they have these highly secure mechanisms to keep everything secure. They're in a a pretty spot, I would say, but- Well, yeah, I guess it's a a cash cow if you can create the problem and sell the solution. Yeah, it is a very interesting spot to be in. But I, you know, I'm I'm a big supporter of what Apple's doing, trying to make privacy front and center. My personal opinion is that, you know, cybersecurity has been huge for organizations the past 15 years. You're seeing privacy catch on, not so much in the US, much more in the European Union, uh, with some of the laws and regulations they have. From a consumer standpoint, I think privacy is going to be one of the main concerns in the coming years. I think it's all going to pivot to that. And I think we're trying to build the, you know, the platform to yes, take care of security. Some of these these historical things that still really do matter, but really bring privacy front and center. Um, it seems like that. Yeah, it seems like it's becoming a much more retail concern. You know, people are taking that on board and recognizing what's at stake here and, and recognizing that companies like yours, especially smaller ones who can be a bit more hands-on, who can assess things a bit more granularly. If you could predict where Detect would go in the next 24 months, well, what would you like to see happen? So next 24 months, I'd like to see 15,000 subscribers on the platform. We mentioned before about using those marketing dollars on Google ads and social ads just to try to attract clients to our direct-to-consumer offering and refocusing those efforts towards sales. And I still think that's the key, but still focusing on 
two main areas. One is securing things like banks and credit unions and getting them to provide this comprehensive offering to their client base, right? This is something that we provide to our clients or whomever they provide that to. A, a lot of them are already doing identity protection. Really getting into credit unions and banks, I think, is one, one area where we can leverage our direct-to-consumer offering, sell through a business, and still get consumers on that platform. A second is similar, but it's more in way of employee benefits, I think capitalizing on some organizations who are looking to beef up their employee benefit platform, which has been a hot button topic as people look to retain their talent, maybe they can provide this type of thing to their employee base and their employee base's family. You know, the companies that I've worked for in the past have noticed people asking for these types of services when they see announcements go out as, hey, the company has a password manager tool, or hey, the company has an antivirus tool. We've gotten a lot of emails from employees saying, is this something that we can leverage from an employee benefit standpoint. So those are two major verticals. Would love to secure some deals there and you know get our subscriber base to that 15,000 mark, uh, which I think is a will be a substantial amount of revenue in the next 24 months to prove it's a, it's a viable business idea. And once those users arrive, you're prepared to scale it as well in terms of the products that you offer and the educative process that needs to accompany them. And your costs will stay stable enough that you can uh, expect some some margins and and then some growth that's going to attract some bigger fish to your investor base. Absolutely. I think we're built to scale, have an, you know two incredibly talented technical <laughs> resources who have spent a lot of time making this scalable and sustainable and looking at the app performance metrics. Highly confident in that and highly confident in our, you know, our refresh process and keeping all of this company information up to date in order to provide accurate information to consumers. In that vein, for anybody who's listening to this, who's considering a foray into starting something new, what advice do you have? Where do people begin to kind of decide to make the leap and recognize that their abilities are worthy? It may depend on your age group if you get the reference or not, but think of Dory from Nemo and just keep swimming. Uh, (laughs) And have a bad memory. (laughs) There there are an incredible amount of challenges and, and, and hurdles and things that don't work out and questionable moments. But if it's an idea that you believe in and you really want to see it work, just keep going. That's kind of been where I'm at. There's, there's certainly been challenges. There's been successes. There's been a lot of no's, but you need one yes to a thousand no's. And that could be the de- de- deciding factor in whether or not it works out. So don't be afraid of hardship. Don't be afraid of rejection. It's not easy to secure funds. It's not easy to start a business. It's not easy to gain support. <laughs> it's yeah. not easy to, 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 to retain talent, but you just got to have that grit to keep going. That's the thick skin you got to have and recognize that not every bad thing is even necessarily a bad thing if it leads to a better thing. Matt, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about your frank views of equity crowdfunding and your passion for this industry you've chosen. And I wish you all the best of luck with this. I'm uh, very enthused to see that you had some success so far. You've clearly got the mind for this and the, uh, and the wherewithal and the talent and the skill. And I'm grateful for having you on to talk about what the experience was like and where Detect is going to go. So thanks for coming along. Yeah, I certainly appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Thank you very much for listening to episode 243 of the Successfully Funded Podcast. Our guest has been founder and CEO of Detect, Matt DeVico. And as he mentioned, you can find information about him at detect.com and at wefunder.com slash detect. And you'll find those links in our show notes. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another investment story. And until then, we'll see you next week. Thanks. 